What I did was uh, uh, organize uh, some of the questions in groups where they were about related themes. I've been, I've been instructed by both my teachers not to contemplate or think about Dharma. How am I supposed to relate to Dharma talks? How much sense does it make to contemplate, I mean think and imagine, about impermanence and anatta? I think it's really an important question. You know, how in, in hearing uh, so much through the Dharma talks and the capacity of the mind to reflect about one's own experience, is this useful in our practice at all? There's a very special quality in listening to Dharma talks that can be quite transformative. Now, in the Buddhist time, there are so many stories of the Buddha speaking, and just as people were listening, some kind of transformative understanding would arise. And in the list of meritorious actions, you know, like generosity or morality, in that list, both speaking the Dharma and listening to the Dharma is categorized under meditation, which is an interesting placement. Because in fact, when we listen with care and with openness, not discursively, not listening do I agree, do I disagree, kind of writing footnotes in our mind. But actually listening, taking it in, and it's almost as if in the moment we do what's being said and we actualize it in our experience in the moment. It can be tremendously uh, transformative and liberating especially in the context of a retreat, and it's what makes it so wonderful to meet here in the hall and to talk of the Dharma, because your minds are in such a receptive and open and concentrated space. Um, from this side, it's very different. It's a completely different experience than giving a public talk someplace. Uh, and so you want to use you know, the fruit of all your practice, to listen in a way that is non-discursive. Really let the, let the words settle in and do them as best you can. In terms of thinking or reflecting about our experience, it's generally not so helpful, for example, about impermanence or not or dukkha or whatever, you know, aspect of the Dharma one is reflecting about. Because the reflecting is second-hand knowledge. It's not the direct experience. And so it would be much more effective to actually be noticing the momentariness of phenomena than thinking about things being impermanent. But as we all know from our experience, Dharma thoughts will arise these reflections will arise. If they point us back to the experience, then they're serving a useful function. If we're simply entertaining it as an intellectual exercise, it's less helpful. 
So be watchful in your practice. There's, there's a very great seductive power of Dharma thoughts. You know, it's one of the big seductions of the thought realm because it's about what we're doing. It's about the practice. Be watchful about getting lost over and over again in those kinds of thoughts. Use them as a pointer back to experience. Use them in that way, not discursively. The notion that it was possible to relieve another person's suffering and that it was good to do so was part of my upbringing. Probably all of us involved in the so-called helping professions believe it is possible. On this retreat, however, when getting in touch with the depth and complexity of suffering, it has become clear that only I can relieve and prevail to end the suffering I experience. My question then is, what is the role of acts of kindness and compassion? I can walk up the hill with Sisyphus, I can help him push his rock, but he has to decide for himself to step aside and let it go. In walking with him, does the act of kindness actually help me more than it does him? How does this practice actually relieve the suffering and bring awakening to other human beings, as is the way of the Bodhisattva? I think we want to look at the question of suffering and compassion and action with a wide spectrum of understanding because there are many kinds of suffering and many kinds of action that can help alleviate it. From the very obvious and simple examples, if somebody is hungry and we have an opportunity to feed them, we do that. And that alleviates that kind of suffering. If somebody is sick and we're able to cure them, so we help. That's a compassion action which relieves suffering. If somebody is in emotional or mental distress and there's an ability to help relieve that, so then compassion moves us to do that. What's interesting is that when the Buddha was describing different kinds of miracles, he described three different types, three different categories of miracles. He described the kinds of miracles of the psychic powers when you know, you can make multiple bodies and fly through the air and dive into the earth and Lots of stories of that. I'll just tell you one little story. <laughs> it's just quite unbelievable, you know, from our perspective. It's, somebody had asked if there were any more Deepama stories. Well, this is a Deepama story told to me by Munindra, who was her teacher. And he said that when she was practicing uh, through the jhanas and, and samadhi and the development of psychic powers, one of the things she would do as she developed these powers was just, he'd be sitting in his room and she would just appear there spontaneously. And not coming through the door. <laughs> just, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> 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 
what to say. <laughs> so this is one kind of miracle. This is one kind of miraculous power. The second kind the Buddha talked about was the miracle of reading other people's minds. You know, and there are countless stories of great beings who have this power to do that. Um, there was a great Thai forest master, uh, Ajahn Man, who was like the granddaddy of all the Thai forest tradition. And there's a, a biography written of his life, and it's quite extraordinary because he was just this amazing person and renunciate and yogi with all kinds of powers. But one of the tools, one of his skillful means in teaching his disciples was he would regularly be reading their minds. And, you know, anybody had one wayward thought. <laughs> and then in the public, in the discourse that evening. <laughs> uh, so people were very watchful. <laughs> I thought to myself, that could be effective. <laughs> I'll assure you that it's far beyond my capacity. <laughs> but that's another kind of power that can be developed. But the third miracle that the Buddha talked about, and the one that he said was by far the highest and the most profound, was the miracle of instruction. That is, helping people to understand the nature of suffering, how it arises, how it can cease. And so it's true that each one of us has to walk the path ourselves. You know, and we ourselves have to let go of craving and grasping and clinging. But compassionate action can very much take the form of helping each other understand this process of the mind, understand basically the Four Noble Truths, suffering its cause and its end, and the way to the end. And that becomes the highest kind of compassionate action. The Buddha actually uh, discouraged um, the monks and nuns from demonstrating any of the other kinds of psychic powers, because even though they are potentials for the mind and can be developed, he felt that they were not truly liberating and not conducive you know, for liberation. So I think there is a way that we actually can help each other on this path of awakening. Now, there were a few questions all around quite an interesting um, topic. The teachers talk a lot about accepting things as they are, but clearly we all act to change things. If someone came at you with a knife, I assume you would defend yourself. Could you speak about the connection between accepting things as they are and trying to change them? Sometimes it's said or implied here to accept what is, to accept limitation, but aren't obstacles made to be overcome? What would have happened if the Bodhisattva had accepted what is, accepted his limitations, and not strived on? What is self-acceptance, and how does it operate in metta and vipassana practice? This is a related question. 
Would you please discuss how best to skillfully deal with repetitive, obsessive thoughts taking the form of arguing or debating with adversaries or friends? Stepping back and noting anger and also recognizing elements of attachment, that is to be right or to win, hasn't seemed to be adequate. I know patience is needed. I seem to I seem too allergic for metta when anger is strong. Okay, so it's really all about understanding what accepting means in the context of our practice, in the context of our lives. And it's important because I think it's easily misunderstood. Acceptance is the first stage in a process. And so we have to realize that it's the first step, not necessarily the last step. It's the first step because in order to deal effectively with what's arising, in order to have insight into what's arising, we at first need to be accepting of the fact that it's there. If we're denying, if we're pushing away, if we're wallowing in, if we're identified with, it's not possible to see clearly. So for example, with anything that arises, whether it be wholesome states or unwholesome ones, the hindrances or the calices, the first step is to be accepting of the fact, recognizing of the fact, yes, this is here. Anger is here, fear is here, desire, lust is here. So that's what acceptance means in the context of the practice. It doesn't mean that we agree with it, it doesn't mean we think it's good that it's here or bad that it's here. We're basically acknowledging the truth of it in that moment. But the next step then is beginning to bring discriminating wisdom to that clear recognition. We see actually what's present, and then we say, is this a skillful state? Is it an unskillful state? Is it conducive to suffering? Is it conducive to peace? We actually have some wisdom about what's arising. We don't stop there. Because in the recognition, in the acceptance, and then in the wise discrimination, then we have the opportunity to employ a vast range of skillful means. How are we relating? How do we relate to what's present? And the context, or the larger context for this question of how we relate to it, is described by the Buddha in a teaching that runs throughout the suttas, uh, the teaching on the four great efforts. And the four great efforts, uh, these may not be in the right order. To abandon the unskillful states that have arisen in the moment, and not to let the unskillful states that haven't arisen arise. To cultivate 
the skillful, wholesome states that have arisen in the present, and to cultivate those which have not yet arisen. So there's a clear teaching here that we want to be able to see what is skillful, what is unskillful. What do we want to cultivate? What do we want to abandon? Once we see that, much of our practice, maybe all of our practice, is really understanding the range, the very vast range of skillful means to accomplish this. Sometimes the skillful means is no more than simply being mindful in the moment. Because mindful draws together all the other wholesome states of mind. So, for example, if anger or fear or an unskillful state of mind arises, in the moment of being mindful, we actually are abandoning it. That is, we're not identified with it, we're not feeding it, we're not strengthening it by condemning it. Because aversion or condemning of the unskillful is just another way of feeding it, of making it stronger. And so, to a large extent, in our practice, the skillful means we employ is simply to be mindful, to rest in awareness. And that implies being with it, with the discriminating wisdom, without identification with the state as being I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. But sometimes that's not enough. Maybe the state or our involvement with the state is too strong and we try noting, and that was the last question I read, what do we do about obsessive thoughts that drive us crazy? Yeah, and we're noting and noting, but it doesn't seem to make a dent. Maybe we try metta. You know, if there's a lot of anger or fear, sometimes the metta as a skillful means will work, sometimes not. One strategy which I might have mentioned earlier on, I'm not sure, but I think it's a very helpful one to explore, and it's really a counterbalance to the very soft, <coughs> allowing side that we've talked about a lot. And this is the strong warrior mode, you know, where we gather up the strength in our mind with a lot of obsessive, repetitive thoughts, and we take the sort of wisdom uh, enough. You know, from a real place of strength, we, we cut them. It's a very powerful place to access in the practice. The caution in doing this is that we need to do it not from a place of aversion, because then we're just feeding it again. It has to be done from a place of strength and even a place of humor. You know, where we take the sword... And I remember one time in a self-retreat, I forget what the particular tape was, but it was going, <laughs> and going, and going, and going, and going. And I tried all these different things. And then, as an expression of this sort of wisdom, I just said, I kind of gave myself a talking to. 
I said, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to be free? <laughs> yeah, I just, okay, what's really important here? And it was quite amazing because just in, in kind of taking that place of strength inside and reconnecting with what my deepest aspiration was about, why I was practicing, it helped. It helped cut that aspect of the mind which was just indulging the thought process. Now we each have to discover for ourselves and experiment this whole range of skillful means. Because sometimes this will work, sometimes it won't. Sometimes we need to shine meta on the obsessive thought train. Sometimes just the noting will be enough. So in terms of what, what acceptance means, it means the simple recognition that something is there. Then there's the understanding, is this a wholesome state to be cultivated? Is it an unwholesome state to be abandoned? And then we bring the, the skillful means to bear. Sometimes mindfulness is enough, sometimes simply seeing the emptiness of it all. That whatever it is that arising, it's all just empty phenomena rolling on. And so we disidentify in that way. Sometimes metta, sometimes the sword of wisdom. Acceptance does not mean passivity. I think that's an, that's an important distinction to make in our practice. Now there are a whole group of questions which come every time. If there's no self, <laughs> what is incarnating lifetime after lifetime? and subject to the laws of karma. If there is no self, no owner of thoughts, feelings, etc., is there an owner of karma, an owner of my birth, of my coming to this retreat? Are these two impersonal? Could you once again talk about the relationship between karma and anatta, assuming that there is one? I find as I grow older, the concept of karma becomes more central. That is, accepting that this is my life. These are the circumstances I must face. On the other hand, how does the possibility of karma, karmic transmission interface with the concept of anatta? I used to have an intuitive... an intuitive grasp of this but it has evaporated during the retreat. <laughs> what about karma? And could you briefly describe all the worlds described by the Buddha which we as Westerners don't have to believe, but which you were assured are there? <laughs> Please, when you speak of getting off the wheel of birth and rebirth, does this mean nil karma being attained? At which point we disappear? If there is no self, then presumably the witness or observer is our brain or memory. Okay, so this is an interesting question in terms of understanding selflessness and the law of karma 
and how the two mesh. If, if there's no self, who reaps the fruit of karmic action? I think an analogy that's easy to understand, which uh, illustrates the bringing together of these two descriptions of experience, if we just take the, you know, the laws of genetics and just look at, at you know, we plant a fruit tree and the seed grows and it becomes a sapling, becomes a tree, bears fruit. I think it's fairly easy to see that the growth of that is a process, that the seed becomes the sapling, is transformed into the sapling, and it grows, transformed into leaves and branches and fruit. It's not that the seed, that first seed, is carried up through the trunk and into the fruit. It's a process of becoming. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, due to certain conditions. There's sun and there's earth and there's water, and that's why the Buddha called our lives and all of samsara a process of becoming. There's no one element that stays the same. What we are is this process of becoming, just as in the example of the seed becoming the tree, becoming the fruit. But it's not happening accidentally, it's not happening chaotically or haphazardly. There are laws governing the unfolding process. And in that example, we could call it the laws of genetics, or whatever it is they're called. So we plant an apple seed, we don't get a mango. An apple comes because it is following a lawful process. What the Buddha described in terms of our process of unfolding is that one of the laws, although not the only one, one of the laws governing this unfolding process of mind and body is the law of karma, which simply says that every intention is a seed which bears fruit. And so our lives unfold according to the intentions the seeds of intentions which have been planted. There is no one element carried through. It is a process of becoming. There is no one to whom it belongs. So in that sense, there is not an owner of the karma. But to use conventional language, if we're talking about ourselves, we could say that what we are is this changing process. And given this action, this result follows. It's a process empty of self, happening lawfully. And according to the teachings, the same way that it's happening within this one lifetime, which we can observe, it happens from lifetime to lifetime. It's the same process which continues to unfold. 
Actually, Trungpa Rinpoche, he had a great one-liner about the whole process of rebirth. He said, somebody asked him, what is it that's reborn? And he said, our neurosis. (laughs) And I think that's a wonderful description. Because basically, the seeds that create, the seeds in the mind that create a rebirth, are the seeds of ignorance and craving. If ignorance and craving are there, the force of that, the energy of that, at the moment of death, creates conditions rebirth consciousness. Nothing is carried over. It's a process of becoming. This becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. Now it's said that an enlightened being is free of ignorance and craving, and so the seeds for rebirth are not there. It's of great controversy among the various Buddhist traditions of whether a rebirth can take place motivated by compassion. Some schools say yes, some schools say no. Let's get enlightened and find out. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think one of my, one of my main, a a recurring motivation in practice is really just to find out the answers to all these questions. <laughs> What guidelines do you use to assess your own practice or yogi's practice? If our true nature is peace and Buddha-like qualities, why do we so rarely experience this? Why is our predominant experience one of defilements and difficulties? I realize there is not a set pattern that everyone's experience is different. However, could you please share from your own experience the general flow of a long retreat such as this. Michelle touched on it the other morning when she said that usually or often around the one month mark, it can feel that it's all falling apart, but that one has no landmarks by which to assess one's bearings or location. I'm feeling just that. I'm feeling as though in week five, I'm not such a good yogi as I was in week two. I'm trying to make the day even more continuous and not let my energy bleed, but even so, the nagging voice tells me that I'm really only a one-month type of yogi. (laughs) And that I don't have what it takes for the long haul. Can quite understand this is yogi mind, but I'm groping around in the dark a bit. Just an aside, is red wine vinegar on the condiments table not against the precepts? I hope you haven't been guzzling. In terms of how we can assess our practice, 
what guidelines to use. I will mention a few that seem to me the most significant. But also my experience has been from doing many long retreats uh, that most of my assessments of my practice during retreat have been wrong. And so I don't feel I don't think that it's really such a helpful thing to do because we're so caught up in the process. It's very difficult in the intensity of a retreat to actually step back and have a wider view, a wider perspective of what's going on. The the concentration and the mindfulness have been developed so minutely and carefully and we're right there in it. It's extremely difficult to have a balanced assessment. It's in this respect that the spiritual faculty of faith or trust is so important. You know, because if we draw on that and we just have the faith to keep walking, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, surrender to the Dharma, let it happen. There are so many ups and downs and twists and turns on this path. And there are different models for understanding how it's developing. There are some models which are linear. Now where we start here and we do our practice and we end up here. And these are, this is a traditional, one traditional way of explaining what's, what happens. In this linear model, how we feel is not necessarily an indication of how good the practice is going. Because there are times when we can feel quite happy and blissful and clear and mindful, and at other times when we feel discouraged and suffering and it feels like it's all falling apart. And in certain cases, the latter is a deeper place in practice than the former. But it in no way feels like it. You know, the, an image that came to mind which fit this linear model of the practice. One time I was um, hiking with Steve Smith in Hawaii. Uh, we were teaching there and we went on a little camping trip on the north coast of Kauai, the uh, Nepali coast. And exquisitely beautiful, as much of Hawaii is. But it was very interesting. It was an 11-mile hike, you know, along the coast. And the trail went up to the top of the cliffs and you had this magnificent panorama of the ocean and the mountains and the, you know, the foliage. And then the trail went down into the thick growth and vegetation and it was all dark and you could hardly see anything. It was humid and you know, more uncomfortable. And then the trail went up to the top again. And again, this great expansive view. And then down again and up and down. But it was going forward all the time. If we assess at any one point, oh, now it's clear and wide and open and fantastic, and we think, oh, this is good practice, and then we go down into the valley and we're exploring the dark undergrowth and think that's not good practice, it's not, it's not a valid assessment of what's happening because 
The course of practice takes us through both. So know that, you know, and with faith, with trust, with surrender to the Dharma, it unfolds by itself. There's another model of practice which is not linear at all, and it's more the model of the sky being, and the sun being covered by clouds, but the sun is always shining. And really what we have to do is to understand the clouds as being just that, and through non-attachment and non-aversion, the clouds part and we see the sun shining. So that's the model of the understanding that the nature of awareness is already pure, is already luminous, is already present, that we don't have to create it, and we simply have to be undistracted from it. And so our practice is more a matter of coming back again and again to this clarity, to this awareness. I think both models can work. You know, we may have proclivities towards one way of describing experience or another. The real assessment that happens Understanding that there are many ups and downs in this, in a moment, are we aware or are we not aware? I mean, it's that simple. It's sort of a binary system. You know, it's one and zero. <laughs> in any moment, are we aware, are we awake, are we mindful, or are we lost? And so, if in our practice, we find ourselves with more moments of awareness, then it's a good indication that the practice is proceeding. Now it gets a little tricky because one of the things that happens as we become more aware is we become more aware of how lost we are. <laughs> but the mind can pick up on, oh, I'm lost so much, I'm lost much more now than I was in week two. A much more likely possibility is that we're considerably more aware of how lost we are. And that itself is a sign of deepening practice. Also, something that happens both over the course of a long retreat and certainly over many years of practice, and this would be good to was about to say reflect on, but <laughs> not to reflect on, <laughs> is <laughs> just the general level of equanimity that we have about the ups and downs. It's not that the ups and downs necessarily level out. You know, we have all kinds of patterns of conditioning that are going uh, to come up, and it really is a cleansing, purifying process. So we can be going through a very clear, calm, quiet place and then it's almost as if a button gets pressed in the mind. And there's an explosion of either energies in the body or memories or feelings or emotions. But it's actually a clearing out process. One measure of our practice over time is whether we feel there's a growing equanimity whether we're able actually to be with these changes, 
with more balance. Does consciousness have a direction, an evolution? According to the teachings, it's more a revolution than an evolution. Revolution in the sense of revolving and that the process of consciousness is a dynamic process and the wholesome factors of mind can become strong, they can become weak through practice. The unwholesome factors of mind can become strong, can become weak. And so it's not that you know, all beings are on this path that will inevitably lead to enlightenment, to freedom. And sometimes we're going the other way. Beings are going the other way, out of ignorance, out of delusion out of not knowing the causes of happiness. And so even as they want happiness, they may be doing the very things that are causing suffering. And something I'm sure you've realized in the month or so that you've been here is that this is not just them. <laughs> this is us. That very often, out of the force of conditioning, out of the force of habit, of mind, which is a tremendously powerful force in our lives, that we get caught again and again in things that we even know are unwholesome. We know are going to cause suffering and still do them. And so it's to understand that consciousness can evolve in any direction. And that's why the Buddha was so... Uh, so emphatic about the need for <coughs> vigilance, the need for diligence, for attentiveness. Now the very last words, and just imagine he spent a lifetime of teaching motivated by compassion for all of us, for all beings, you know, to help us awaken from suffering. And his very last words uh, before he died was, all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your liberation with heedfulness. It requires this quality of heedfulness. Otherwise, we're simply carried along by well and deeply established habit patterns of mind. So this quality of heedfulness, of mindfulness, of attentiveness, of awareness, of wakefulness, they're really all words saying the same thing, the same quality. We need to pay attention with discriminating wisdom of what it is that's arising, where is it going? Now, is this a skillful state? Should it be cultivated? Is it an unskillful state? Shall I abandon it?
There are two related questions. What is enlightenment? And where does unconditional love come from? Of course, enlightenment has been described in a lot of different ways, but the, the most pragmatic expression of it, I think, and one we can relate to in our experience, is the mind free of craving. In which craving or attachment to anything as being I or mine has been uprooted. Where that no longer arises in the mind. And we've all had glimpses of it. So it's like we have a, we've had tastes of what a free mind would be, what an enlightened mind would be. When the mind is free of any grasping at all. Because with us, it doesn't last. For an enlightened mind, a fully enlightened mind, the Buddha mind, that is the experience. Mind with no grasping, with no attachment. And sometimes I think it's... I don't really know whether this is helpful or not, but it's nice to do. (laughs) Which is just for some moments... To pretend, you know, to pretend that we're fully enlightened. And so just kind of to imagine that mind, even for a moment, which is just completely open. No grasping, no attachment, no clinging, in which everything is just happening. Empty phenomena rolling on, filled with compassion, filled with metta. So this relates to the second question, where does unconditional love come from? we could say that the absence of self is unconditional love. What makes love conditioned? It's conditioned because it's conditioned by a sense of self, a sense of I. With that sense of I, as long as there's a sense of I, inherent in that, predicated upon it, is the sense of other. If there's I, there's other than I. From the perspective of selflessness, emptiness of self, there's no separation, there's no duality. And it's out of that selflessness. Or or one could say that unconditional love is the expression of selflessness, because there is no one there to be separate. And just an image which may or may not kind of help just to give a possible flavor of it, Sometimes I think we sentimentalize metta, or unconditional love, and we imagine it in a kind of hallmark card kind of way, gushing over with loving feeling. But an image which strikes me as being... uh, perhaps more helpful, is when we consider the body as an organism. You know, if one part gets hurt, the other part takes care of it. 
This hand doesn't go around saying to this hand, I love you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a sentimental attachment. It's the love of being one. You know, it's, there's the sense of one organism, and so there's that relationship of love. If we had that sense, not, not limited to this particular mind-body, but if there was really the sense of selflessness, there would be that kind of feeling for all beings, because there would be no separation. Somebody uh, who was here for a while, he, he has a very a scientific mathematical mind, and in one interview he was talking really about this question, and he said, for him that this question is expressed in the equation, and I hope I have this right, <laughs> meta equals, or meta equals one over self. And as self approaches zero, metta becomes infinite. And I thought that was a nice way of expressing it. You know, as self disappears, what remains is metta, and it's unconditioned, unconditional. Of the many experiences that a yogi has between one interview and the next, how to choose what to report? And a few choices. The seemingly most mindful experiences, the least mindful, the most confusing, the most typical. I think there are a few uh, guidelines that might be helpful and actually uh, make the interviews more helpful. It would be good to describe your clearest experience either your clearest sitting or your clearest walking, or you're sort of at the forward edge of your experience. Because sometimes people are hesitant to do that because they feel it's a little dishonest. You know, for most of the day, maybe the mind's wandering and confused, and then there's one clear sitting, but it feels like it's cheating <laughs> to report on that one. We all know what the mind is like. <laughs> so it's really not cheating, it's really just expressing in, the, in your clearest time what is it that's being experienced, what's being seen. That's helpful. You know, and then uh, the appropriate guidance can be given. It's also helpful if there are particular problems that arise. You know, if you're struggling with something, and it's not clear how to work with it, that also is helpful to talk about. How does one practice metta and the jhanas and at the same time not, ult not ultimate craving for the above to arise and also increase the sense of self? I cannot solve the expectation problem. On one hand, they were necessary to enter the Buddhist path. During practice, they are a hindrance and appear especially when concentration gets a little better. 
What possibilities exist to exist with them? Do you ever teach the jhanas, the four jhanas? I have the impression that the absorptive states are unmentionable, to be discouraged in fear of attachment. Yet didn't the Buddha know the jhanic levels well? Don't the jhanas have much to reveal? If so, why not teach them? Actually, they are very much part of the teachings. For those of you who are not familiar, the, the word jhana is a Pali word, and it refers to levels of concentration that are realized or attained in doing concentration-type exercises. One of the ways these jhanas can be developed are through the Brahma-viharas. And we do teach that, uh, and some of you are practicing that intensively. They, the possibility of them arising happens when the metta or compassion, when that meditation is done in an intensive way, like uh, the Vipassana. Usually don't begin with that because um, these jhanic states by themselves don't lead to liberation. They don't actually create insight. Because in them the mind gets very fixed. The, the quality of one-pointedness is very strong and it enters as a fixedness to the mind which is very helpful in terms of developing the concentration, in terms of um, overcoming for that time the hindrances. The mind gets very strong, very powerful. But it is not seeing the three characteristics. When, when people are doing a samatha practice, impermanence and dukkha and selflessness are not are not particularly being seen. And so the emphasis, particularly in this tradition, is to establish our practice in the path of insight, because that's the liberating path. But after some time of that, and after some experience, then if people are interested in doing samatha practice, jhana practice, it is a very uh, wonderful complement and it can be very helpful. Now the question of expectation, both in terms of metta practice and also Vipassana, this is a very interesting question. One of the dangers that I experienced in doing the metta practice as a samadhi practice was as I was doing it, I had so much expectation about what would happen and the experience and, and is it happening yet and how am I doing and that continual referral back to my own practice. That itself was a great hindrance and it was missing the point entirely that the point of doing metta is to be wishing well for the other being. It's not, how am I doing? Am I concentrated? How's my metta? <laughs> and it's that kind of just turns around the whole energy of the practice. 
So as we're doing it, we need to remind ourselves, yes, this is for, we're sending metta for the other. And in doing that, these various levels of concentration can develop, but we want to keep our priorities straight. You know? And in that way, the metta really stays uh, quite pure. In both metta and vipassana, there's an important distinction uh, between expectation and what in the Pali is called chanda. Chanda is a mental factor and it means desire to do, desire to accomplish something. This is an ethically neutral factor because we can have a desire to accomplish something good and wholesome and we can also have a desire to accomplish something unwholesome. So in itself it's ethically neutral. But when it's aligned with a wholesome understanding, with wisdom, it is what the Buddha called one of the roads to success, one of the roads to power. Because this strong motivation to do is the energy which can fuel our efforts. This is different than expectation, which is energetically a reaching, a reaching or leaning forward. It's leaning out of the moment, trying to hold on to something or to get something. And it's not helpful because we're no longer in the moment, either in the metta practice, just with the metta, or in the vipassana, actually being with what's arising. And so we want to understand that the motivation, this desire to do, is very powerful. And in part, largely what brings us all together here. We all have this factor quite strongly in our minds, this, this strong motivation to accomplish. Distinguish that, though, from the quality of expectation, which is a reaching forward, is a grasping, is a clinging. They're two different qualities. The Buddha was filled with chanda. I mean, it's what motivated him over lifetimes you know, to, to undertake the path. Well, there are many, many more. I'll just end with, uh, there were a few questions uh, about merit and what merit means and how it functions. Again, it's an important question because it is easily misunderstood. We tend to think because of the English word you know, of making merit, it sounds like collecting gold stars for something and seen in that way it really can become the reinforcement for a sense of self and I. The Pali word for which merit is the translation is punya. 
And punya means the wholesome forces in the mind, the wholesome mental factors, the purifying mental factors. In the context of understanding that the wholesome factors bring about good results. And so when we think of mindfulness and concentration and generosity and sila and wisdom and metta and compassion, these are all the beautiful factors of mind. These are what constitute punya. They're beautiful in the moment and they are the seeds of happiness in the future. They're the seeds of worldly happiness they're also the seeds of wisdom, the seeds of enlightenment. It's because of the accumulation of these forces of purity that um, you know, sometimes it's described as the ripening of the mind, of the mind stream. You know, each of these wholesome forces in the mind purifies or ripens or matures our minds so that in any moment, actually transformative understanding can take place. It's all, in, in colloquial language, it's the result of merit. But it really has to do with the wholesome, the development of the wholesome forces in the mind. One of the things that we find in reading the Buddhist teachings, there's, there's a sutta uh, called the Mangalam Sutta, which is the sutta or discourse on blessings. Sometimes we'll come in and, and read it or post it because it's just the Buddha lists all the things that are blessings in one's life. One of the blessings is the practice and the effect of punya, of merit. Because actually this is what brings about happiness and what brings about liberation. And this punya or merit is enhanced to the degree that we understand its selfless nature. That it's not belonging to anybody. It's part of the unfolding process of our mind and heart. Let's sit for a few minutes. Make some merit. <laughs>